Uh, greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined as always by my good friends Richard. H- Hello. <laughs> and my good friend Michael. Howdy. <laughs> These guys debate, deliberate, uh, discuss, uh, digest the most ubiquitous uh, aspects of many topics. And this time around, it is the Mount Rushmore of alternate. Uh, uh, it is the Mount Rushmore of musicians' alternate personas. Did I get it right? Yeah, you nailed it. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. fucking the, nailed it, Jeff. On the Good third job. try. <laughs> uh, who chose it? Uh, this was my choice, and. Um... I chose this because uh, as I am want to do, uh, Emily and I have this huge playlist of music videos that we just keep adding things to over the last few years. And um, every, uh, every once in a while, a Friday or a Saturday night, we'll um, have a few drinks and we'll put on some music videos. And music videos are great to um, just have fun and drink to and hang out to because you don't have to pay too much attention. You're watching it, you're listening to music and, um, you know, it's over in three to seven minutes. So um, any particular like dog walking that needs to happen or going to bed things that need to happen, you're just like, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't, I don't need to pay attention all that much. But then you're just like, oh my God, I'm sucked into this hammer video from 1991. It's <laughs> like, do we need to watch the um, 14 minute um, too legit to quit MC hammer video? And you're like, I think, I, I think I do. I think I need to see all of it with like, uh, uh, we're just uh, all of the everybody that's involved. You see all the superstar athletes and, um, you know, just a random assortment of uh, celebrities and folks. David Faustino is in it. So you're just oh. like, oh, my God, I got to see. Wow. Whatever this is, Danny Glover. And um, uh, who is the, uh, uh, the, majority. the king of soul? Uh, um, Aretha Franklin? No, I feel good. James uh, Brown? James oh, Brown is yeah. in. Oh, the, the greatest thing about that video, and I'm really off on a tangent because this doesn't because Hammer MC. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering how you're really getting an, back to this. Yeah, Hammer MC Hammer doesn't really have an alternate persona per se, unless you count his slight name change. Um, the entire premise of the video is that Hammer has disappeared, and everybody wants Hammer back, and then um, James Brown convinces him that he has to dethrone quote the gloved one unquote. And it's all about like the destruction of Michael Jackson uh, via, you know, like uh, pyrotechnics and dancing and uh, uh, Hammer being very, very sweaty. And it's very exciting. It's incredible. (laughs) 14 minute video. Uh, Capitol (laughs) Records is very prominent and like the producers and uh, people that own Capitol Records are very prominent. It's it's a very strange. The first like four minutes leading up to when they actually start singing is like wild. And then you get into like, fireballs and like (laughs) it's insane but uh, i put a music video on there recently that um had one of the performers that um, we're going to talk about and it made me think like oh my god what are the other types of like uh people that have um decided to choose an alternate persona within the musical realm that they are going to enact perform yeah an album out as whatever there's just so many different aspects of musical performance that I think are quite interesting when you're just like, oh yeah, I'm Bob Smith and you know, Bob Dylan goes out there and puts out an album and he's maybe, uh, I'm forgetting some random Bob Dylan album where he was, um, I don't know, a rapper or whatever. But like, for the most part, he's Bob Dylan, but then other people have chosen another path. Yeah, awesome, fun topic. Okay, 
Okay, cool. So Michael chose it. So Richard leads off. All right. So my first choice is XTC. What uh, a shock. What nice. a shock. <laughs> um, I as, am not... as CTX. <laughs> yes. As XXXTC. <laughs> um, no, and I'm not going with the Dukes of Stratosphere oh. because we uh, have discussed that, I think, ad nauseum mm-hmm. on the show and don't need to uh, really revisit that. Um, I am going to be discussing their uh release as the three wise men huh. um build as i'm just looking this up right now uh what year this came out hold on one second we're going to edit all this out right sure. no, we're not we're not going to edit this out oh, well richard My bad. <laughs> i think no. it's interesting that we assume that whatever we see of that artist to begin with is their actual persona is is something that is close to who they are, as opposed to um, a put on, <laughs> you know, to begin with. So, right, that's so, true. There is no such thing as a real persona. Yeah, it's 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 could be that which is manufactured, you know, sure so, uh, already to begin with. So, what were you going to say? Uh, who- so, I was going to say. So, this came out in 1983. The uh, the the pseudonym was came together. They the three members of the band uh, released the song as. Uh, as the uh, band named the three wise men um and the song's called thanks for christmas oh which I love is that song. yeah a song that that comes up you know on many popular 80s yeah. um christmas compilations um and it was a song that was uh is is credited to the writing team of caspiar melchior and balthazar so they were really going all in <laughs> with the three wise men theme um, it was a song that Andy Partridge had written um, and didn't really feel like it made sense for them to come out with a Christmas song, uh-huh. but wanted to do something with the song. Huh. So the original thought was they were going to have this group of uh, secretaries from Virgin Records, which was their record label at the time. And they were going to get them to sing the song and all of them were named Mary. And so they were going to release the album as the Virgin Marys. Nice. Singing Thanks for Christmas. <laughs> um, Virgin Records apparently thought that was too blasphemous. I mean, later they put out Dear God, so I don't know how much room they've got <laughs> to talk about that. But um, so Andy Partridge decided, well, we just have the band do it. We'll put it out as a, uh, we won't put it out as an XCC album. We'll call it The Three Wise Men. We'll kind of keep our, our identities hidden. It was kind of a dry run for the Dukes <laughs> of Stratosphere in terms of, you know, how how, what would happen if we put out this album or the song at least um, that was not with our name uh-huh. and it turns out it really didn't do anything commercially although there was a bit of mystery in terms of who the members of the band were uh, there was a uh, there was a theory going around at the time in 83 for a while that it was Phil Collins playing drums and singing on it it was not <laughs> um but I just love, I, I love this idea of make, you making a one-off project that you yeah. feel like, okay, if we put this out as XCC, everyone's going to think, well, this is kind of weird that they're putting out a, a Christmas album, a Christmas song. It's going to come off as kind of like this weird money grab. It's going to, how does that, how does that fit with the whole persona that they've kind of created as a band? 
and suddenly you're comparing this song to other songs that they've done you're comparing it to full-fledged albums you know stuff that they put a lot of pride and work into and that's not the point of this it's just supposed to be kind of this goofy christmas song and the b-side to it by the way is the song called countdown to christmas which is like this sort of white boy funk rap sort of thing which is something xtc should never do <laughs> and and is proven by that song it is the dredges yeah. of xcc but it's okay because if you're doing that as the three wise men and it's just this goofy kind of gritty politi sounding white boy funk eh, that's okay you know mm-hmm. it's just goofy but if they were to put that out as xcc everyone would have gone oh wow what is xcc doing goofing around with funk and yeah this is oh boy i don't know about this yeah so i like this idea that that putting out putting out a song or putting out an EP or whatever, an album, whatever it happens to be it with a pseudonym kind of protects your, protects the band or protects the artist mm-hmm. from a lot of the comparisons to themselves. Yeah. I, I find it interesting because when we think of uh, what motivates an artist to create another character and then provide that, character with songs and a story and stuff like that in this case it almost seems like they wrote a song that was out of character and uh, created these other identities that wouldn't seem untoward to be performing this song yeah i mean it's you know the the his the the litany of goofy christmas songs that have come out before yeah Kind of, you know, and, and, and XCC being this band that was kind of seen as, I think, you know, they made very kind of serious mm-hmm. sort of albums. Yeah. Um, very, very kind of button stiff upper lip sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, that this gave them the freedom to be able to do something kind of just goofy and yeah, and Christmassy and just didn't matter, I think, I think was, was great. I wonder if it's so it seems like the holiday single is something that has a bigger footprint in the UK. And I don't know if yes. it's the uh, government-run media that and radio that makes that uh, even more um, focused and on point, but right. it does seem like something that a group would have an even greater motivation to do in the UK than in the US. It's almost a contest that everybody's got to take part in. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that Christmas in general, I think any given artist can put out a particular Christmas type album or single or whatever. And everyone's just gonna be like, okay, I understand why you wanted to do that. It's Christmas. It's, it's fun. I, you know, we did a, God, probably three years ago now, four years ago, we had like our Mount Rushmore of like, um, maybe it was like indie Christmas Oh yeah, songs or uh, yeah. Was, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it was kind of like uh, Christmas songs done by um, different artists or whatever, and um, you know that it runs the gamut, and it's just kind of like okay, you you have such a, a permission slip by the music industry to do this. I, I mean, I I love the fact that XCC went that extra mile and created a whole new band out of it. I think that is that's what that's where you're like you know, trying to really push the envelope of Christmas music is like a very uh, loaded statement, but like that the idea of it, I think is very interesting. I'm interested to know whether that was a legal uh, 
uh, end run, mm. or huh. if they if they could not even release product um, under a certain you know if that would have. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes people take on an, another identity. We we know of a certain artist uh, who took on another identity to get around a relationship with a uh, a record label. So um, sure, yeah, I don't think yeah. this, I don't think that was the case because yeah. they released it on the same label. Uh, okay. uh, but you, but it is interesting that you bring up the UK Christmas number one single, mm-hmm. and you're right. The idea of putting out a Christmas song specifically for trying to get to the top of the charts is something that is very British. Mm-hmm. You know, that goes back to when Slade came out with Merry Christmas, everybody in 73 and wizard came out with, I wish it could be Christmas every day, the same at the same mm-hmm. time. And those two songs fighting for the number one song on Christmas weekend. And that kind of started this tradition of whatever of the biggest number one of the year being whatever the number one happened to be oh. on Christmas. Huh. Which is not something we have in the United States. The Christmas number one is just not a, yeah, it's just not something that we think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's absolutely one hundred percent this big deal. You know, you can, you know, you can go to William Hill Bookie and make a bet on what song is going to be the number one <laughs> on Christmas. Um, you know, there have been trends like in two thousand nine of basically. They were, a bunch of fans were able to game the system and get killing in the name by Rage Against the Machine uh, bumped up to the number one spot. Wow. So there's been all sorts of like interesting stories about this mm-hmm. Christmas number one. So if you're a British band, this idea of doing a Christmas single is not as unusual as I would think, I, as I think it would be if you're an American band. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Okay. All right. Uh, Winfield, what is your first choice? Um, my first is choices. I'm going to go with the artist that made me think of this topic in the first place. And that is um, Humpty Hump, the um, <laughs> alternate persona of um, Shock G, who is the alternate um, persona of Gregory Jacobs, who unfortunately passed away um, just about a month ago uh, from the um, rap group uh, Digital Underground. And Humpty Hump is in particular, a very clownish character. Um, uh, The band itself isn't very ultra serious rap group, I guess. I don't know if I identify him as serious, but this persona within the group is someone uh, who can take things to a um, more naturally comedic level with his kind of exaggerated um, way of singing. He's a very, uh, as I said before, kind of clownish. He would wear like Groucho Mark glasses. And so he's this very comedic performance within like someone uh, that has like so many other different performances within the group too. Like um, Humpty Hump performed as Rackadelic and he has uh, the Piano Man and he has like all these different personalities um, as a performer that kind of impact the production of music or um, kind of uh, on stage things or different voices um, within the rap group. But like Humpty Hump is this one that just like, maybe the song was just better. Maybe it just appealed to a wider audience, but like the Humpty dance was just this song that is just so, it enabled this personality to kind of take over and be the most kind of um, dominant voice uh on that record and on that album and 
they didn't do a ton of songs with Humpty Humpy, sang around, uh, sang on a song called All Around the World as well, which was kind of like a hit single for a uh, terrible movie. Was and, that Nothing um, But Trouble? Was it? That is the, that is the, <laughs> the Dan Aykroyd starring yeah. Nothing yeah. But Trouble, where his yeah. um, nose looks like a penis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, the things that you want to be remembered for. Um, but he's just, he was the first person they thought of. He was the one that I thought was like, oh, this is a persona that kind of even overtook what should be like the baseline persona as a rapper, like Shock G. And maybe I'm coming at it from someone that's not as educated, but I, I don't think of Shock G as this person. I think of Humpty Hump as the person. I think that's an interesting thing when you create hmm. a clown character, uh, create someone to be like a comedic relief, and then they just uh, take over. Like I, I yeah. can imagine something like a um, like Jerry Lewis creating like like if he's mostly known as what like the nutty professor, yeah. lover, and whatever. When like uh, he probably he's probably in so many more characters, but like the goofiest, silliest thing is kind of the thing that he's remembered for. Yeah. Humpty Hump is the Steve Urkel of '90s rap. <laughs> yeah, that's a re- kind. Of. There you go. I, I guess Andrew Dice Clay had a very uh, broad uh, um, performance. <laughs> he, he had different roles that he did on stage, but Dice Man was that thing that broke through, and right. so I can kind of see that it's almost his Chaplin's Tramp or uh, Paul Rubens. <laughs> Pee Wee character, that thing that just becomes so ubiquitous. Yeah, that's funny. Like, um, wow, to think of uh, Pee Wee Herman as a character, like he hasn't really performed as anything else. You know, he has a couple of other roles that he's done. Wow, that's a really interesting comparison that I'm just sitting here thinking of now. You know, uh, I remember him being in like the, the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie and he yeah. had a very tiny performance in batman returns mm-hmm. as the penguin's father and like but Wee herman her paul rubens is Wee herman that is yeah I, most i yeah all right uh manfredi what's the second one my second choice is damon alburn as oh. 2d from oh, the also, band the gorillas also also on my list oh, i kind of okay. wondered if it was going to be on your list yeah. yeah um i love the concept of gorillas i love how much depth that uh, him and Jamie Hewlett, who's kind of the visual artist in charge of the band, have put into this whole gorillas world. You know, you've got this idea of 2D basically being the almost stereotypical kind of good looking, good singer, kind of dumb, kind of a kind of a, a not all there, kind of they call him a blank site. A blank slate of paper where his brain should be is kind of the sure. the concept behind the the uh, character. Um, and I just I what I love about gorillas and about two D and about Damon Alburn doing this is that he originally didn't want to do the voice for two D. When they were coming up with the concept, they started auditioning other singers to be the voice of two D. And it wasn't until they got through some auditions and seen some people they thought might work, might not work, that he realized, no, wait a second, I'm, I'm the only. Well, you okay there, Jeff? Yeah, somebody's got these like incendiary bombs. I gotta get my dog out. He's freaking out. I'm sorry okay. to. No problem. A huge explosion. 
Jeff recording live from Baghdad. <laughs> Sorry. You know, Sorry. when the go when the when the ghosts when the ghosts take over <laughs> next yeah. door, you know you're in trouble. You know, when they're when they're blowing up big bags and uh it's Memorial Day evening. Come on, guys. Uh, it doesn't I don't know where they get these huge or where they're where they're blowing them up, but Sorry. We get fire. We get fireworks every night here. Do you? I don't understand. Okay. I don't understand. I, I want to say, spend the money on your lawn. Like, yeah. On. Yeah. Okay. No kidding. Sorry. Okay. So no problem. So one of the things I love about um, about two D and gorillas is the fact that Damon Alburn didn't necessarily want to be the voice of two D when oh. him and Jamie Hewitt came up with the concept they actually auditioned other singers to do the voice of 2D. And it wasn't until they had sort of come up with, like, come, gone through some auditions, heard some people that Damon Alburn said, no, wait a second. This is the character I created. It's not coming out right. I should really just do the voice. And I love the idea that by doing, by creating this persona, he was able to create something that was, separate from what you would think of a Damon Albarn solo project sounding like. I mean, Gorillaz really sounds nothing like anything that Blur had done. Yeah. I think what is impressive about this sort of project is it feels, it felt so complete from the beginning. I think right. that um, um, Jamie Hewlett, uh, most famous for Tank Girl, a very weird comic book um, out of Australia and a terribly adapted movie that wasn't very good. But um, the idea that you're not only performing, you're not only writing music as in a different style that sounds so different from Blur, uh, you're adding all these different sorts of hip hop influences that his voice sounds different from Damon to a certain extent he's singing in a different style but then visually the way it was put out is just everything is so you know as a as a cartoon it's and as they performed like in person they'd perform behind screens they often uh like put up the entire like pretense of this band that was touring that was these cartoon people that exist in this reality I the completeness of it is the world building yeah, the world building is just, um, was just key. Uh, and just like it sells it. And I, you know, at this point, Gorillaz have put out more albums than Blur has since they debuted. And I think it probably led to feeling like a more interesting project and a more like I can devote myself into this character more than I necessarily need to with um, Blur, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, I think it kind of does solve the problem of, because musically gorillas is yes there are other collaborators who help out but it is essentially a damon alburn yeah kind of like solo project him doing pretty much everything and so how do you i think there i wonder if there is some sort of reluctance to put yourself out there as look i'm the guy who is doing everything you know like the paul mccartney solo album type model so I wonder if there's a way to mitigate, there's a thought about mitigating that by creating all of these different cartoon personas that are part of this quote unquote band 
so it doesn't have to feel like it's just Damon Alburn out there doing everything himself. Man, I, I think that's really fascinating. I I think one of the things that I find so interesting about it is its precedents are something like the Archies. <laughs> or, yeah. Or the, or like, you know, the, the, um, not the bugaloos. I'm really like like weird animated kid shows and and the things. banana splits. Banana splits. Yeah, it just seems like sure. And, when there's a giant, when there's a giant singing shark, you kind of like <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not yeah. that interested. Yeah, and for it to succeed in a way. Um, oh uh, yeah, definitely in terms yeah. of the U.S. More you know, feel good ink went to like top twenty, which mm-hmm. Blur never did. So yeah. this idea, this idea that it's kind of like goofy kind of an- hybrid animation music project wound up becoming the most successful thing commercially he's ever done. Yeah. I think it's just fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I guess like something I can kind of associate it to is um, a band like uh, garbage. It's like, here are all these people who were uh, successful producers and uh, uh, who decided let's put out some garbage that, uh, that we can get on MTV <laughs> that people will love. Like we, yeah. we know what, we know how to make the good stuff. Let's make this crap and be famous. Like, I think cameo also did that cameo had like a jazz fusion background or something. Oh, really? Then they decided let's do something called, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll get funny haircuts and call it word up. And, and these guys, these jazz guys suddenly were on MTV. You know? Like, uh, so they made a cartoon version of themselves. Well, which came first? Was it the jazz? Was it the yeah? They the, were all working. Was it in... the funk or was it the cod piece? Which came first? <laughs> I I does think the cod they... piece lead, lead to funk or does funk lead to the cod piece? Well, like like Chic or other musicians who evolved out of out of jazz or actually they evolved out of a, a musical environment where there weren't any there weren't that many labels where we just played music and right we we popped around into whatever genre that we were really interested in, uh, but. Uh, not as literally as the gorillas, gorillas did they create a cartoon version of their musical identity. So, right. Um, I think there. I think there's just kind of this with all of these personas. There's just this constant um, need to try something new and to not necessarily tag it as yourself. To hang hang your hat on a different name, a different persona, a different thing. To try this music out and be like. Uh, if it fails, uh, that was just this other guy. Yeah, there. I think there is there is a freedom in it, but I think there is a security in it too, that you can just write it off as something that belongs to someone else because I've created somebody else. And if it fails, nah, it's, yeah, it's this, it's this other it's this other person. I was just trying something else, and sometimes <laughs> it never you never like recover from it. But sometimes you're just like, oh, this is this <laughs> like with. The, with Damon Albarn, with Blur is like, oh, this other thing that I created is more popular than this thing that I spent the last like 15 years doing. So let's, that's kind of fucked up. Uh-oh. Right. Yeah. I, I remember reading that uh, um, Avon products, Avon products, uh, Avon was an offshoot of a company that sold books. They sold books door to door. And if you bought a book, you'd get this little vial of perfume. And people liked the perfume so much, they, they stopped wanting to buy the book. They would ask, ask these ladies, can you just bring me some of that great perfume? 
So they started, you know, it's the car that they got out of the horse business and got, got to the cart business. I imagine artists like Damon Albarn probably played, he probably had five, six different bands before Blur. And that one landed and he probably wouldn't even be able to tell you why. And he, right. he'd probably say, yeah, I'm used to having a, I was used to having a different band every year before this one got successful. So, um, so yeah, this cartoon, this cartoon thing is, is, was just a little, another flight of fancy. I mean, I think uh, it also helps that the, um, you know, the illustrations are good too. Like Jamie Hewlett oh. as part of like this band, like he's a very interesting cartoonist and uh, comic book artist. He's, like visually, he's very distinct from anything else you kind of generally see. I think there's definitely a uh, kind of more, um, I hate to use the word street, but like there's a very graffiti aesthetic to his exaggerated kind of characters. And I think that he's, I think it leads to something very interesting that doesn't feel very corporate. So it doesn't feel like it's coming out of a Disney universe or Warner Brothers universe or whatever, it feels something that is like, oh, these feel like real things that real people are doing versus something that's been generated within a collective or someone yeah. like getting a stamp of approval and being like, okay, well, 2D looks like this, but he should really mm -hmm. look a little bit more like this. His eyes are all black and that's weird. So why don't we lighten up the eyes and put a nice blue in there? You know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, there's, there's something that, these characters of like kind of the four main gorillas look different than anything that you see. And so they, they have an authenticity that I think doesn't exist when you're just looking at like, oh, well, that's Lola Bunny. And you're like, well, I don't give a shit. That doesn't exist anywhere they, else. That's, you know, whatever. Good Lord. They seem like for me, an offshoot of the illustrations that I would see on a hardcore poster or a zine in yeah. the 80s or 90s like yeah. uh, some kid who started off drawing um characters like you would see in mad magazine <laughs> but then they started giving them spike collars and uh, nose piercings and things like that and then they became the gorilla so interesting uh, if you hear any explosions um that's just that, us being excited that's us blowing up that's, that's, that's <laughs> jeff's alter ego as explosion man yeah <laughs> He just, uh, he just randomly like <laughs> blows up uh, paper bags that pops on to see if anybody's still listening. Who I am He's is a, going he to is be... a Muppet. <laughs> I'm a Muppet, yeah. Yeah, Harry the... Uh, He's going to start throwing see... fish next. If you see early Jim Henson commercials for coffee or bread or whatever, oh, it's, yeah, all, it's always a Muppet blowing up another Muppet. Murdering yeah. somebody. <laughs> It's it's always like try this coffee. No, fuck you. It's like, yeah, it just shoots you. It's weird. It's great. It was like TikTok before TikTok. Was like five second. I want a five second commercial. Okay. Uh, gonna, there's a Muppet gonna die at the end of it. Uh, okay, so uh, it's hey, it's halftime. It's halftime, and it's time for us to take a take an all our alternative identities. I'm. Uh, I bonsoir, Mananam is Pierre. <laughs> I am this French podcast host who is going to implore you to download, rate, and review of the best episodes of the podcast. Uh, all right, enough, enough of that. I'm going to pass the torch to uh, Michael. Michael, what is your alternate identity? Hey, 
my alternate persona is Richard. What? Oh, nobody wants that. I don't even want that as my main persona. Much less, much less my much less an alternate one. So let me tell you about how I understand. I'm trying to think of what are the exact opposite things that Michael understands. Let me try. uh, Let me tell you how I understand chords, and uh, yeah, how great I am at um, all these different things. Bowling. Trivia. Having children that love him. Sports. Uh, s- sports watching. I did I'm pretty. Gonna, I, I'm not even Richard. I'm not even gonna give you sports. I'm gonna give you. You're really good at watching sports. That's good. Well, I could, uh, can we accept Me. corn? Can we accept cornhole as a sport? Because you'll be good at oh. cornholing if you take on. My I don't know, Richard. Are you gonna talk <laughs> about how great you are at like cornhole? Because I don't remember that. I was I, the pretty, only sport I. The only sport I good today. I, the only sport I know that I'm better than you is corner push-ups. I still have the world record at that. So there is no way you have the world record at corner push-ups. I'm pretty sure it's me. Pretty sure it came up in my feed. Okay, well we're back, and since uh, Michael also had Damon Alburn, he'll do his third choice first. Okay, my third choice is Mephisto. I'm sorry, Macfisto. Macfisto, or maybe even the Fly when Bono decided that only after about 10, 11 years, uh, he is gonna just go all in on like the indulgent thought process of what it is to be a rock star um, with the band U2, obviously Bono with yeah. U2. And he created a couple of, um, U2 is very interesting as a band where only after a decade of touring and a decade of being a band there, you know, they became the biggest thing in the world and they continue to be the biggest thing in the world. And then they capitalized on that by, by just saying like, okay, well, we're, if we're going to be the biggest band in the world, we might as well be it. And we might as well put out the biggest tour. And they did this zoo TV tour in 1991 through like 1993. They toured for like two years straight with these giant monitors, and giant stage performances. And uh, within that, uh, they would generally play like a very similar set um, going through or they change it slightly, but Bono would come out within these and he'd create these like onstage um, personas. And one was like Macfisto, and he, uh, which was kind of dressed up as, um, you know, very rock and roll and leather jacket and almost kind of would try to be kind of like the devil, of course. And then he'd have another one called like the fly with these big bug glasses that hmm. he hasn't seemed to have gotten rid of since 1991. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about people creating these personas to, ah, uh, what's the word kind of expand on what they wanted to do. But this seemed to be like a reflection on what people assumed that he was. I think Bono has this, is in this very interesting world of being one of the biggest pop stars and biggest rock stars in the world. And I think people per, you know, kind of um, uh, push a lot of their ideas onto him. And I think he just like, I think he just dove head first into it and bit like in, dove head first into it saying, if this is who you think I am, I'm just gonna be this thing on stage and just deal with it and Mm. you know it's very glam and very 
rock star. I don't know if he's like that as a person. I, who knows? I, I don't know what any of these people are like as people. I don't think they are people anymore. I don't think anybody is <laughs> like rock and roll or in that is a famous movie star. I don't think they're real people at this point. I think they're just like <laughs> yeah. these things. And I, I think you can't get away from it. I think you're just out there like doing things. And mm. I think that in as a way to exercise this, he probably acted it out and, you know, kind of leaned into it. And, uh, you know, who knows how much that carries on, but these were definitely personas that he would put out there within the show and then come back to being, you know, I'm Bono and, uh, you know, yeah. Irish independence and X, Y, Z and yada, yada. And yeah. There you go. And then, you know, you, it's, it's, it's a way to kind of like, express yourself and then come back to being the real you and you can do that every night and god isn't that great Mm -hmm. i wonder if as the as an entertainer as the venues and audiences grow do you need feel the need to compensate them (laughs) through a performance that gets larger each time and i I imagine a guy like bono still recalls the days where they played for nothing were spit upon but then now that audiences are paying 150 dollars per ticket probably thinks well i gotta i gotta mock show i gotta do something i think there's definitely yeah the expectation is there you want a bigger better thing we saw you two like uh, a couple of years ago i mean i you know we are post in post covid times now we're like you know trending trending post covid and we got um family uh, uh, one of our people in our family couldn't go see them and they gave us free tickets and we're like, I sure, we'll go see you too. It's not like a, it's funny, it's not like a band I'd ever go buy tickets to, but if yeah. you're given free tickets to go see you too, like, yeah. sure, what the fuck? Yeah. And we went out and like, it was fucking great. Their stage show was incredible. It was this mm-hmm. huge, it was this huge monolithic, monolithic thing that just like descended from the roof of like, uh, the auditorium that we saw it in and like the shrine or it wasn't even the shrine. It was like the, where did the Lakers, the forum, I was kind of trying to think of where the Lakers used to play. So the forum is this huge thing. And then they had multiple stages. And of course, like, you know, at some point, uh, there's the fly, there's Mephisto, there's these guys <laughs> that come out and you're just like, I know that guy from almost 30 fucking years ago. And wow. you're so excited to see this thing that like, I'm sure in its heyday was so, important and now it feels like meh, all right yeah. yeah i got it but at least i got to see it in some version of it uh-huh but man do they know how to fucking perform <laughs> i've only seen the fake bono at uh, starlight bowl <laughs> mono mono, mono. It's all, <laughs> you only hear it out of one speaker <laughs> on the left hand side and you're like ah close enough uh okay uh manfredi what do you got for your third all right, my third choice. I am going with Ramon's bass player oh. and <laughs> and songwriter Didi uh, Ramon and his hip hop persona Didi King, <laughs> making one of the strangest albums ever made. Yeah. Um. Basically, the story goes that Didi Ramon was in rehab or the hospital or some sort of facility for his uh, heroin addiction. And while he was in there doing his rehab assignment, 
he uh he kind of fell in with this group of uh fellow uh uh fellows who were in there who are all who are all kind of into hip-hop and rap and his real name first name was doug so they gave him the nickname dougie fresh Hmm. and kind of schooled him on what kind of what what hip-hop is all about and he got done with it and came out and was like basically great i want to make a hip-hop album and dd ramon had no background in hip-hop no knowledge of how to make a hip-hop record so in many ways it is this great kind of naive music kind of outsider music concept is what do you what happens if you take someone who whole life is based on the punkest of punk rock and you sit them down and have them try to make a, a hip-hop album uh-huh. and it turns out it's a hot fucking mess is yeah. what it is. <laughs> spoiler spoiler alert there yeah. it's the whole album is it was, and it was done at i can't remember the name of the the recording studio but it was the same recording studio that did like run dmc and the bc boys and LL Cool J and all of the like 80s New York hip hop acts. And it was the same production crew and everything. But it's this guy, it's this guy doing the rap who sounds like, you know, he's straight out of, you know, Queens, basically. And it's, it's, you can tell it's made by somebody who really wants to connect. I'm trying to, you can tell that I'm trying to be very like diplomatic about it. Uh, yeah. It, you can tell it's made by someone who has their heart in the right place in terms of like this newfound love for, for hip hop and uh, has no talent for it whatsoever. There's, there's a moment in, uh, you know, uh, Blondie's, uh, uh, what is it? Oh what's yeah. The name? Rapture. What's the name? Rapture. Right. Yeah where you just like oh, god bless you i know you're trying i know right. that this is i know you're trying to feel i know you're feeling this thing i know that you've been within this community i'm sure i'm sure that you were just like okay rap is cool and neat yeah neat or, i don't know if blondie would ever use the word neat but i'm you know uh debbie harry you just like uh no swing and a miss yeah there was a lot of that happening in the 80s because there was this sort of intersection i mean you had like a yeah you had a band like the clash that was able to authentically pull together punk and what was happening with hip-hop and make it really amazing dd king was not (laughs) yeah the not clash. the ambassador and not the person to do it well and it's interesting and by the way you you mentioned blondie uh, guess who uh, appears as on a couple of tracks? It's Debbie Harry and Chris Stein. So clearly there was some sort of, wow. they were still partially, mainly it was done as a favor because everyone in the community loved TV Ramon and wanted to see him do well. And he had just left the Ramones. So this was like his big solo moment. And I mean, the album's called Standing in the Spotlight. And that's kind of what it was his moment to oh, try I and love do these that. Guys. So they wanted to try and help him out. But obviously there was some sort of also love of hip-hop that was being transferred mm-hmm. from blondie to to dd ramon it does seem like, like people like uh fab five freddy who were who hung out in blondie's circle but also hung out in like the uptown art circle like he would might be at a party with andy warhol or basquiat you know right uh or, or 
it seemed like there was so much cross current between hip hop and punk. Anybody in uh, punk could recognize that hip hop was this authentic street based thing that uh, was of the same intent that uh, that um, uh, that punk came from. I would also say Dee Dee's persona in interviews is also very much a prototypical rap persona in that he was about self aggrandization. Yes. <laughs> so, and, and uh, al almost like a Trump-esque thing, because he just, he wanted people to be on his side and also bemoan those people who did not uh, give him the credit that he deserved <laughs> all the time. So, I mean, I well, I, well, go ahead. I was gonna say one of the songs is called Commotion in the Ocean. And it's about him, it's him rapping about taking surfing lessons from a mermaid. <laughs> and it's got this like very it's got this hip-hop meets dick dale sort of like a uh, vibe wow. to it it's just very strange yeah i love, I love, that, I, I love that uh uh the guy from the b-52s just swims up and he's like that's my line <laughs> i mean you you look I, i've literally never Stay out of this. my business <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i'm looking at i just went to wikipedia because i've never heard of this album and i love that it's like musically the songs vary from old school hip hop and doo wop yeah, to rock and roll and punk rock. That is a wide uh, swath that you are painting, that you're just all over the place. Just whatever you're trying to accomplish is. Uh, I like the guy, the green. I, I, I approve of whoever is like the, the producer that was just like, yes, this is what <laughs> we're doing now. Yes. Good job, Dee If you go to Dee uh, website, okay. it's one, it's stuck. It looks like a, an angel fire or like Judas <laughs> City's like <laughs> website. But, um, and the news, you know, the, 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 this LP is like the top story um, here, the vinyl release. But then like the next story is like that he's going to be on Jeopardy, <laughs> a contestant on Jeopardy. And he <laughs> died 20 years ago. Yeah. That's how much. So it probably is an angel is fire. It? Oh wow! Because I mean, yeah. he, he died twenty years ago. Wow! Oh yeah. my goodness! Well, it's in a new episode twenty fourteen. Well, anyway, yeah. Holy smokes! <laughs> that's a fun. That's a fun choice. You know, it does also like, I, I when when you hear the Beatles, see interviews with with uh, especially like Paul, but also John, we talk about in early days when they were being interviewed about rock and roll they would they'd often say that people always were interested in asking how they long they thought the band would last or rock would last and for them they didn't think it was going to last that long at all i don't think i think in maybe there was an american film or something something like that or lyrics for that rock and roll is here to stay i don't think any beetle ever thought that and they thought they were going to be if they were lucky, they could be posing a theme for Shirley Bassey to sing in the next Bond film or something like that, or get onto some other musical genre. And so I, I can see how the, wow, I can see how these young kids kind of thought, well, we might as well try it because who knows how long this punk thing's going to last. I might as well, might as well cut, a, cut a rap album. I'm on the ddramon.com website and I'm seeing yeah, that they're, went to it. they're selling the DD Ramon Fender Precision Bass which is great to have a signature model from the bass player who played the most simplistic yeah. and basic <laughs> bass lines in rock history. At least it's not a jazz P bass or anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's, there was nothing precision about Didi Ramon. No. It's so funny. 
wow. Maybe just speed. You know, like they play a whole show in 25 minutes. You guess you need <laughs> souped up action on there. Okay, so then it's Michael Winfield for well, your fourth. Am, yeah, I am so glad that you brought up someone that was kind of a failure because my last one, even though like maybe um, economically wasn't much of a failure, but Chris Gain, Chris Gaines. There it is. There, there it is. we go. Yeah, yeah, there's the one. As the alternate Someone persona had to do of, it. Yeah. of Garth Brooks. Uh, you know, we had to get it in here as this thing that you just look at the picture of uh, Chris Gaines on the cover of the album um, Greatest Hits, which is, wow, that is wild. That you put out, your first album that you put out as this alternate persona is the greatest hits. And you're just like, Holy shit! Yeah. What do you yeah. think is what do you think this is? Uh, it went to number two though uh, in the U.S., which is fucking phenomenal. Just based on like the idea of like Garth Brooks as this mm-hmm. um, huge persona as a musician, and you know he's the biggest fucking country music star in the world, and was for you know so many years. But arguably the biggest star in the world at the time, yeah, musically. And then he's like, "All right, my idea is that this is this is who Chris Gaines is." He's got a soul patch. He's got kind of like eyeliner. Uh huh. Yeah. He's got dark hair, shaggy hair, kind of looks a little emo. And they're like, okay. And this is the kind of music I'm going to put out. Okay. Guess what? Australian. And you're just like, what the fuck is. You don't have yeah. to go that far. Like, I know that, like, you know, the guys from Blur or, you know, Damon, Damon went to cartoon, but this is just something else. <laughs> I had Australia, a guy, Australian, a good good buddy who's a pretty uh, informed country music aficionado, broke it down for me and said, mm. "Okay, here's the deal. Garth Brooks, what his vanity led him to want to become an actor, and he was going to do this movie about the this lamb. person, the Lamb, mm. and yeah. the Lamb would have featured many different identities." Chris Gaines was one of those identities. So it was this um, anthology or multi-episodic or something. It would be, it would maybe be bizarre if we saw it and we'd wonder what the heck was going on, but we would get it. Oh, he's playing all these different parts within this thing. And these, these albums were kind of like stories inside stories that once you saw the big picture, you'd kind of get it. It was the Zelig of music. The movie didn't happen. So what was left is this relic that has no footnote to it. <laughs> what the right. heck is this thing? So there was a uh behind the music that was created for Chris Gaines. Wow. There was supposed to be a tie-in with the movie, and then the movie never happened. So they released this sort of behind the music episode that was about the whole like fictional backstory of Chris Gaines and the car accident he'd had that made yeah. him become I love- recluse and the whole thing. Just, I love the idea of just yeah. getting it all out just to make any amount of money back. Yeah. 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 Don't have to explain. We'll just put it out as product and it's related to the most profitable person that we have. It's yeah, wild. And- that I, my main, my main memory of, of him. I don't think I've heard a single song. I probably heard a song, but I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter what it is because the image of what it is is more important than what it is. You, was, you when re- Garth, you- was when Garth Brooks was the host of SNL and Chris mm-hmm. Gaines was the musical guest. Yeah. And you're just sitting there and you're just like, oh my God, just 
constant like jerk off motion like who gives it like what what are we trying to who are we trying to impress here what is this thing that we're who is this like this fake ass thing that we're trying to do and then but they just still did it and then as you said the movie never came out well here's the weird thing we remember it as a total bust right like this total like disaster it went to number two in the u.s the album did it was two times platinum the lead single lost in you reached number five on the singles chart, which is, I believe, the highest ranking single he ever had in the Hot 100 chart, the overall pop chart. So even though we want to consider this to be this great failure, that's how popular Garth Brooks was. Even mm-hmm. his yeah. even his failures were successful. Well, what I, what I like about this too, just looking at the Wikipedia page, comparing it to the D.D. King page, the D.D. <laughs> King album was like 26 minutes long. The Garth Brooks album is 56 minutes long. That is twice as, that is at least twice as much or almost that you're just like, I'm so, he is so convinced of his content that he's just going to put out this 13 song (laughs) album that lasts almost an hour. And you're just like, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't something you just cut off at the past. Like, you know, like the second Strokes album was like 34 minutes and you're just like, yeah, that was when the strokes were the fucking hottest thing in the fucking world. And they're just like, yeah, half an hour is fine. Yeah. <laughs> we're good. We got it. And he's like, you know what? I got, I got almost 60 minutes full of Chris Gaines for you right now. <laughs> it makes me wonder what like the other, uh, <laughs> what the other personalities were. Did he have a cartoon character in there? Did he mm-hmm. have like a rapper? Oh my God. Did he have a rapper? Oh. Did he have like, what were the other characters from the lamb that he wanted to do? Yeah. And he just has like on like, you know, big reel to reel album somewhere that he just has it all recorded. This nonsense. Let me ask you this question. Do we think that if Garth Brooks would have said, Hey, I want to make a pop album. And he had released the album instead of being, you know, a life of Chris Gaines, it would have been, you know, a Garth Brooks solo album that just happened to be a pop album, would it have been treated with the same derision or would we have considered it to be a better album? I think it's, I think that is, it's so hard to say because I think it would have just been the, the Garth Brooks album that wasn't for the Garth Brooks fan and said he would have just gone back and you know, there would have been one or two songs that would have kind of appeared in his set list going forward when mm-hmm. he performed live, when he was still performing and just like, all right, that was the one that we like. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. I love The Cure, but every once in a while you hear a song that's like, okay, that was one from one of the newer ones. You're just like, that should be the eighth song in their set list. And then you just go back to the things that you want to hear. Yeah. I do appreciate the fact that in March and reading the Wikipedia here in March of this year, uh, Garth Brooks announced that the album was going to be re-released on multiple platforms, including previously unreleased songs. Oh, great. He won't let the fucking thing go. That's Just let him to a bit. My dude, they're not making the movie. I don't know how else <laughs> to tell you on how many times you put this out. They're not making it. I would have loved if the rest of the other like faux personas uh, were also put out albums and they were also called greatest hits. Yeah. That would have been the best if he had like, you know, like a piss James or whoever it is that were mm-hmm. also just greatest hits, greatest hits. God, that would have been incredible. Veronique. 
Oh, she's a, <laughs> she's a torch singer. Oh my God. Who is his like transgender uh, character that he, was he very, has in his pocket somewhere? Not that this is any relation to a transgender character. He was a, on SNL, one of the funnier hosts uh, um, at, in a sketch, a game show, ask an old French whore or something like that. Like he, he, he was an old French whore. Oh, he's, he is also the star or this, the co-star of probably my favorite SNL sketch, which is the one where the devil can't write a love song where Will, where oh, Will yeah. Ferrell comes in. He's like sitting there and he's trying to figure out a, how to write a song. And then he like, I'd sell my soul to the devil to write a, a great song. And then Will Ferrell comes in, dresses the devil, looking like something out of. Uh, <laughs> uh, I forget. I forget. I forget what movie that is that has um, Tom Cruise. Uh, oh, Legend. Yeah, Legend. Yeah. yeah, basically, it's like it's like Will Ferrell Tim dressed Curry, up as like yeah. the devil, as like yeah, in that character. But he has like a guitar and like he's dressed uh, to the nines as a rock star. And he comes in, he's like, "How about this?" And like he he just plays like really shitty songs and he's like uh, i don't think so those are it's like what about this tasty like it's like he just writes a bunch of terrible songs that's it's so incredible is that it is literally my favorite snl sketch and like why right, garth brooks is perfect in it that's funny that's funny rich has got one more all right i got one more um and i'm actually doing a bit of a a uh an audible on this one because i just remembered this uh this album and i'm fascinated by it it's called the turtles present the battle of the bands oh i listened to that like last year awesome yeah so basically everyone knows the turtles happy together um the couple years after that uh song came out uh they decided to release an album that was called the turtles present the battle of the bands and it was a concept album and the concept was that the turtles were hosting this battle of the bands. And then there were all of these different bands that played different genres of music that would do one song as part of the battle mm-hmm. of the bands competition. And in fact, it was the turtles taking on a different persona for each song that was in a different genre. So there was a, uh, a, uh, a Hawaiian song called I'm chief Kamanawanalea." were the Royal Macadamia Nuts by Chief Kawana Monalea and his Royal Macadamia Nuts. There was a surf song called Surfer Dan that was attributed to the Crossfires, which was a bit of uh, inside baseball because the Crossfires was actually the name of the Turtles when they were a surf band before they became the Turtles. Um, it actually had their last really big hit song called Eleanor. Yeah on it which was attributed to how he marked johnny jim and al which is just the name of the the guys who were in the turtles and they even had a song that was written by jim by J- jim mcguinn and gene clark of the uh, turtles of the the, the birds oh. yeah called uh, called you showed me played by a band called the nature's children and i've just always been i i had actually remembered at one point thinking wouldn't that be a great concept for an album just to do, I remember thinking about this when I was doing music more seriously. That wouldn't it be fun just to do a different track as a different genre and attribute it to a different artist, not knowing that the Turtles had done this 35, 40 years before? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was not a big hit in terms of the album. The album kind of stiffed, although um, Eleanor and You Showed Me both reached number six on the Billboard pop charts. So it's fascinating, this idea that the concept bombed, 
but there were songs within that concept that did really well and those are the ones that sounded the most turtle like mm -hmm. i think i don't know it was mark woman or whoever the turtles uh howard kalen said the record company wanted another happy together and eleanor was just he they, they did it under roll. protest yeah right? yeah basically his, his eye roll like what do you want something like this and i love you and you're my pride and joy and say i love you like <laughs> right yes that's what we want that's exactly yeah. what we want and thank you for giving us this yeah. <laughs> it's a huge hit but flo and eddie the mark and howard also of the turtles also like in a way were kind of a battle of the bands themselves as backup singers on many many albums um saying back up on on t-rex mm -hmm. steely dan uh uh ray manzarek alice cooper bruce springsteen duran duran like wow Th that's some versatility right there yeah yeah i also I remember hearing i immediately added this album to my like next up to play in like uh my iMusic or whatever it's yeah. called now it's well you know it's um it's got uh, a sense of humor to it. And some, some of the songs are, are, I think are goofier than they are good. And some are better than they are funny uh, in it. Um, but it also reminded me of like, oh, this was also an album that took advantage like De La Soul used to do of the in-between uh, uh, um, in between the tracks and little comedy and, and bits and riffs and keeping if, if Three Feet High and Rising had a kind of a game show through line, this has that mm -hmm. Battle of the Bands through line through it. That's that's kind of funny. And by the way, I Chief I Come On Wanna Leia was actually sampled by De La Soul. Oh, was it really? So oh, wow. it, all, wow. it all comes around. It all comes around. All right. Well, thank you uh, uh, for all of those who uh, have um, hung out with us through the, this episode. Interested in hearing... Um, if you have any suggestions when you hear this episode, go ahead and post on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter what uh, you think might be your favorite um, alternative persona uh, act from somebody who was already an act. But let's go with uh, Damon Alburn and Gorillaz uh, because y'all both believe in it so hard. DD uh, King was pretty damn funny. We had some uh, uh, fun owning on that fool. <laughs> although the guy was pretty awesome and lovable um and after johnny i think the most ramon looking of the ramones like uh okay after joey and john okay after marky and Jerry. Marky, yeah. yeah okay um and just because he's such he set himself up so high to be toppled down and he's doubling down on it chris Gaines. and let's go with uh turtles present the yeah. battle of the bands that was a lot of fun Good choice, Rich. I hope you guys agree. I, I hate to judge my friends. No, I love to judge. What are you doing to do for <laughs> six years now? <laughs> All right. This has been the Mount Rushmore of uh, musical artists and their alternate personas. I, as always, am Jeff. I'm Richard. Yeah, I'm Michael. I'm Michael.